invite you to open the scriptures to the book of Acts, chapter 28. This is an interesting assignment, providentially, this morning. And if you think I wore the outfit of my heritage because this is the last sermon in Acts, that might be partially true. It's more about having been at the Scottish Highland Games yesterday. And this was the available outfit that was laying around in my office. That's how men are, right? Oh, that shirt's good. I wore that. You've been wearing that for three weeks, but it's available. No, I appreciate that as I appreciate the heritage of the Reformed Presbyterian Scottish Covenanters that were martyred in the Covenanter Church that they brought to my hometown, the only one in my home state, those that are buried there who have been part of that legacy, and to have the privilege and the honor to have gone over to Northern Ireland and Scotland and retraced those steps was profound. It was quite moving. And so I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for all the men and women and children that were put to death or imprisoned over their faith in Jesus Christ and their right, as they saw it, to worship him and him alone. Not Pope or Prelate, but Christ and Him alone. And to Him, they gave their lives. Let's give ourselves now to this text. We're looking at the final passage, which is part two of Paul's final defense in Rome. He's making his defense. Last week was part one. We look at part two now in verse 23 to 31. He's been on this long journey. He's, he's, it's been over a year now since they set sail from Caesarea, caught up in a two-week storm, a tempest, the ship being battered and broken apart, and landing in Malta, sailing from Malta up through the Straits of Messina, which is that narrow body of water that separates Sicily from the mainland of Italy, up to a city just next to Naples, and then walking that final leg up to Rome. And now he's there. He's there in his own rented quarters. He's chained to a Roman soldier. But the Romans have come away with a great deal of respect for him because it's because of him and his direction that he gave that they survived. All 276 of them survived. So we admire that as we've admired many, many different things, the characteristics of this man the qualities of this man. The power that there is in this final message that he gives is unmatched. This book ends, as many have said, in a way that seems abrupt. It seems like it just ends. And it is not that it doesn't have an ending. It ends the way it had ended for other characters that had a pivotal, important main role in the book of Acts, like Peter and John, the Holy Spirit simply stops talking about them because they, as you and I, are not the main attraction. Yeah. So this wonderful voyage to Rome is described by one writer as a, as a masterpiece 
of vivid narrative and one of the most instructive documents for the knowledge of ancient seamanship. And we've seen that as we've gone through this journey up and around the eastern portion of the Mediterranean. We've been through quite a bit. We, um, we look at the way this book ends, and I, I don't uh, necessarily agree with those that think that it's just sort of truncated or, or cut off. I believe it ends right where it needed to, and that is with Paul making his final defense. And we have to pick up from the historical writers at that point that were extant at the time, Suetonius and Tacitus and Eusebius, and we pick up their writings to find out through extra-biblical means then what we can uh, extrapolate and put together as to what happened to Paul. Because he's in these rented quarters for two years. It's assumed that he was let out after that two years by their writings and that uh, at some point, and it has to be probably after 64 AD when Nero decided to burn down Rome and blame it on the Christians. It's widely thought and accepted that it's probably at that point that he was netted with a lot of the other Christians, persecuted and put to death. Tradition accepts it and even theologians accept that he was put to death by the sword, that he was removed of his head uh, as he was beheaded. So that's, that's how it ends, but the church goes on, doesn't it? This story goes on. The gospel goes on. The spirit of the living Christ, the Holy Spirit, that we saw at the beginning of Acts, in the advent of the Holy Spirit, still lives and thrives in God's people. His words still resonate with us. They have meaning. They come alive to us. And so we're grateful for that. But these men, whether it's Peter, James, John, whoever it might be, John, James, of course, the first martyr, Christian martyr, after the first, uh, he's the first apostle that's martyred. Stephen's the first martyr in Acts 7, you remember that. Acts 12 is where James has been killed by Herod. So we've been through quite a bit, and all of these men come and go. After chapter 12, Peter just drops off the map in terms of the text. We didn't wonder at that. We didn't wonder at the other apostles, where they might be, even the new one that was brought on board by way of casting lots in chapter 1. You remember that, Matthias. Not that they, the Lord hasn't used Paul in a very powerful way. He has, clearly. He has single-handedly, if you will, with his companions, that is, spread the seeds of the gospel and planted the church around the then-civilized world all around the Mediterranean. So he's a significant character, all right, but he's just a man. And so he's important to us, he's important to me, as one called to exposit the Scriptures, you can't help but be taken after preaching through his epistles as I have in the past and now through the entire book of Acts. He has an effect on you. Spending every week with him for some time. It was April 19th of 2019 when we started this book. It was a year nearly before covid so we've been at it a long time, and we've been, we learned a lot about Peter. We learned a lot about the gospel. We learned a lot about the church. We learned a lot about the eldership. We learned about ancient seamanship. 
we, we learned quite a bit. We learned a lot about human nature. We learned about riots in Ephesus. We learned about how ugly human beings can be toward one another as we walked through those different events in this gospel. But Jesus Christ is the main feature. He is not only the main feature in the book of Acts, he's the main feature in the Old Testament from the beginning all through their scriptures at the time into the Gospels. All four Gospels are about him. The founding of the church, that's his bride, belongs to him. He died for her on into the epistles and even finding us ending up at our eschaton, seeing the Christ there. And it will be forever for those called to believe. The Jewish leaders have been trying to kill Paul. I mean, we've seen them trying to kill him for some times, some time now. So it's remarkable then, isn't it, in the text, when we look at what he does, the first thing he does when he gets there is he calls a meeting with them. That's remarkable to me. The very ones that he's only loved and still does, never not loved them, never stopped loving them. The very ones are trying to kill him. And he calls a meeting. This is a remarkable man, and we're learning a lot from him. So he doesn't wait to find out what they might think or what they might do. My favorite, my word of the month lately, he's not dithering. Gee, I wonder if they're going to accept me. I wonder if these guys will believe. I wonder if I'll be convincing enough. I wonder this, I wonder that. He calls them. You see, love looks beyond fear, doesn't it? Perfect love casts out fear. Because fear is a foreboding sense of punishment, as 1 John 4 says. Something's going to happen. So you're not loving. You're not pressing on through the fear. We've seen that in Paul over and over again, going right to those he loves, even though he could have many, many different ways that he thinks that this could turn out, and it probably will. I mean, anecdotally, he's got case after case where he can prove that that's how it's probably going to turn out. He doesn't look to the future only in the sense that he hangs on to one clear vision, and that is his Christ. And he holds him and he never lets go. And he wants to take his fellow Jews with him. That's really quite remarkable. So there's a fearlessness that results from combining love, truth, and trust in God. You want to be fearless. Do you want to be fearless? Love God most of all with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love others. First and second greatest commandment. Yeah. If love is prevailing, truth will be made known because trust is what's undergirding. What's the synonym for trust? Faith. That's what we see in the apostle. That's where the fearlessness comes from. He loves big. And so he believes big. 
He embraces, never questions, never equivocates. This is what must be done. This is who your God is. This is the provision He's made for your salvation. There's no other way. As Peter declared in chapter 4 of Acts, verse 12. No other name that we've been given whereby we can be saved. That's the only one we have. So it's the only one He gives together with the truth. Truth is always there. Trust, belief, faith, and love. You and I will be fearless if we grab a hold. Love doesn't fear. Perfect love. In other words, that's a, a teleological term. It's a, it's a completed term. If I could love in a completed way, the way the scriptures define it, what would I fear? What's the worst man can do? Jesus told us, didn't he? Don't fear man who can what? Just kill you. Fear God because he can go beyond that. Yeah? In terms of your eternal destiny. Fear God is always in tandem. It's always juxtaposed. No, it's interwoven together with love. You cannot have a true love for God without fear, a proper reverential fear. You have that in its right capacity, in its right expression. You won't fear anything on this planet. You won't dither over the machinations of man, no matter what's going on in politics or in the culture which is our temptation to dither, worrisome, to wring our hands. Well, you know, if this turns out this way, this fall, then it's over. Thank you, prophet. (laughs) Where's your robe? (laughs) It's right there. But that's who we are. It's what we do. His... His single-fold reason, do you remember his reason for why he's on trial? For the, anybody? I'll give you the first word, you'll get the rest of it. For the hope of Israel. What's the hope of Israel? Two things. The coming of the Messiah and the resurrection. See, that was the issue. That's when they're going to want to kill you. You're talking about Jesus Christ who overcame death. He, we've got the victory in him. Oh, death, where, where is your sting? It's removed. It's no longer there. So it, instead of a dark, limitless chasm of unknown, it becomes for the Christian a threshold. That is death that you simply step over. Welcomed into the arm of Christ. Hearing those words, we all want to hear. Mm-hmm. Well done. Well done. Do any of us think we deserve to hear that? I, I know I don't. I don't think you do either. But by God's grace, He's doing His work in us, and I'm grateful for that, aren't you? But He's this prisoner in chains, so He's a... He's an ambassador for Christ in chains. He's not ashamed of his chains. And, and he points out those who, I don't know, Onesiphorus, whoever it was, who's, he points out is not ashamed of my chains because they are chains forged by whom? 
by Christ. They're His chains. Or we don't have a complete view on the sovereignty of God, yeah? No. So, He loves His fellow Jews because of this unremitting commitment that He's made to Christ, because of this undying love He has for Christ and His fellow Jews, for His people. He can write things like Romans 9, 1-5. to I am speaking the truth. See, the truth is always there, together in tandem with love. It's not loving to withhold the truth from somebody. That's unloving. It's hate. It's self-love, isn't it? I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises to them belong the patriarchs and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ who is God over all blessed forever. Amen. He can't resist this turning into another Pauline doxology. He came from our loins, our blessed Christ. From David and the whole of the lineage that's recorded in Scripture. Paul never gave up on Israel. And neither will God. He would always go to a town. And what's the first place he went to? These people keep trying to kill him. Where does he go? He's doing it at the last. Calling a meeting with his fellow Jews. But it's always been to the Jew first. We'll read this first verse in our text. We'll pause for a moment to pray. Let's read it. Verse 23. When they had pointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in great numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and the prophets. Lord, we thank you for this journey you've had us on. This entire book has been, well, it's impossible for us to measure all of the work that you've been able to do in our hearts, through our minds, as we've observed your word and allow it to have us have its work in us. And so even now, Lord, we need it. We need your help. We need the illuminating work of your spirit. So bless us now with your presence. Help us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So the clear, unmitigated, unminimized gospel is always polarizing. We've talked about that before, all the way through Acts. It's a polemic. When you bring Christ and the truth of his gospel into the hearing of fallen man, what happens? Well, one thing or the other. That's polar opposites. They either really want you to stop talking. They really don't know where it's coming from, but they're starting to well up with some contempt, some animosity. They just really, they couldn't define why. They just don't like hearing what you have to say. 
Now, with the Jews, he's talk about upsetting the apple cart. He's, this gospel is going to destroy their livelihood, the way they've, the way they've taught the religion themselves. And they're not wanting to let that happen. They came to him, obviously. This is a no-brainer. They came to him because he's chained to a Roman soldier and in rented quarters, so he's not allowed to go anywhere. This is the ancient version of the ankle monitor, right? Yeah. So... From morning till evening, he expounded to them. This is an Old Testament expression. Simply all, all day, all throughout the day, he was showing them, as Jesus did. Remember in Luke part one, right? The end of Luke's gospel when post-resurrection Christ shows up and he, starting with Moses and the prophets, he illuminated to them. He revealed himself. He's the main character, as I pointed out, from Genesis to Revelation. So, This is what he's trying to accomplish by God's grace and calling. He's trying to accomplish showing them because his faith is not an unreasonable faith as much as they would like to make it so so that they can validate themselves for rejecting it. It is a reasonable faith. If you look at the scriptures and see what it has to say in its totality, it's undeniable that Jesus was this Christ. He's the son of God. He is deity. He defied death. He walked around on the earth post-resurrection for 50 days. Over 500 people, including the apostles, saw him. I mean, we have so much that we could say, and that's Paul's saying it all, as much as they can endure. But he gets to a place where they say this is over, and so is the book of Acts. So the gospel message that he brings clearly is one that has been borne out and validated from beginning to end through miracles, beginning with the foreign languages they were manifesting in the chapter 2, chapter 10 with Cornelius and the disciples of John the Baptist in chapter 19. So they're all manifesting that. Chapter 8, it doesn't say it, but we can assume that it was being manifested there as well. So they're manifesting these foreign languages But there's healings going on. There's other things happening that are validating the apostles and verifying the message that they're bringing. So it's pretty hard for them to deny. It would be interesting to see how they go about trying to do that. Verse 24, and some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. There you have the polarization of the clear preaching of the gospel. That's what it will do. It will get some people saying, I am, this is... This is what I've been looking for. This is resonating with, this gives me life. I feel like I just started to breathe, like I'm a baby who just got slapped on the backside and I took a deep breath and my eyes were open. I'm Dorothy when the house landed and I walked outside and it goes from black and white to spectracolor. That was my experience. It made sense. It never did before. It came alive. No, no, no. It brought life. It is life. He is life. He brings life. He breathes life like he was there at creation when he breathed into the nostrils in that lump of clay and made a man, a living being that would bear his image. He's trying to show them that. But it's polarizing. Why some and why not others? 
Why is it the many and the few? Couldn't it be the other way around? There's many that get through that wide gate. If only that could have been the real gospel, yeah? Instead of the few with the narrow gate. Because we all have so many we love, so many family members, so many friends. And even in the experience of going back home to preach my mother's memorial service, it's sad, isn't it? But then you get the glimmers of hope from some. As I read the cards from my sister this morning in first hour, those are the kinds of seeds that you're hoping for. There's doubtful somebody in the middle of a memorial service going to walk down the aisle. But you listen to what they say to see if something, if some light was turned on and if they get it or there's some kind of work happening in their soul. But it's always, always a polarizing effect. Do you remember Simeon? He's a harbinger of the arrival of Messiah and what that would mean. Luke 2, 34 to 35. Remember this? This is exactly what he says that the arrival of Christ as a baby is going to mean. Praise God for telling us, giving us a heads up on how things will. And he said, and Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this man lived his whole life. We can assume he's an elderly man now because he's ready to depart. And he's saying he, because the Holy Spirit said to him, you are going to remain on this earth until you see the Messiah. And here it is. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. And of course, the allusion to the rising being resurrection is not lost on us. We can see that. Some will rise to eternal life. Others will fall. That's the way it is. And for a sign that is opposed, he's giving them God is, by grace, giving them a heads up what it's going to be like, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that the thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. See, that's the point. When he comes, he's going to reveal the condition, the true condition of people's hearts. And what's the revealing mechanism? His word and the response to it. How you respond to the Word of God is the mechanism. How you respond to Christ saying to you, here's what I'm saying. How are you responding? I would suggest to you that, at least from my perspective, that's the only way that I know I belong to Him. Because when He speaks, I respond. Sometimes not always the way I want to. But it's Him talking. The truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ is a winnowing fork. And that makes sense when you think just even geographically. As David, King David, purchasing the threshing floor of Ornan. That's believed to be the place where the temple was built. He's always winnowing. Why? Why doesn't he just save everybody? Have you talked to people in your life who've wrestled with that? Or maybe you have? Why don't you just save everybody? That's not the question to ask. What's the question to ask? Why would he come and do that? When what we deserve is to all be eternally damned. He came. 
And he sacrificed his life so that we might have life restored, preserved eternally. J.C. Ryle says, the whole whole forms a prophecy, talking about Simeon, the whole forms a prophecy which is being daily fulfilled. So even in his time in the 19th century, this is still polarizing. It's still a winnowing fork. He gets that. Men who agreed in nothing else have agreed in hating Christ. It would show what men really were. That's what you bring. So hold on to your hats. If, if you've overcome your fear with love, truth, and trust. It would show what men really are, Ryle says, and so it proved. Old Simeon, he writes, spoke the truth. End quote. That'll do it. Verse 25, And disagreeing among themselves, they departed. After Paul made one statement. Here it is. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers, uh-oh, he called them your fathers. What about our? Hmm. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. And with their ears, they can barely hear. And with their eyes, they have closed. Lest they should hear with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn. And I would heal them. You're noticing the plural pronouns there. They did this. They refused to hear. They refused to understand. He's citing, of course, Isaiah 6.10 here. And it's one that's important because when you look at Scripture, Jesus cites it. I'll read that in a minute. Paul cites it. Same principle. So that got my attention. I thought, okay, so there has to be something very profound with this principle. Did you ever, did you, I was almost said, did you ever dither over this? Did, did, you, did, you, did you ever wonder about that? Hearing they will not hear, seeing they will not see. What, what is going on? So I'm going to, just, from the scriptures, try to help us understand the importance of that and what that actually means. It reminded me of a quote. You've heard this quotation before. I'll let you finish it once I started. There are none so blind as those who... No, that's not the one. There are none so blind, listen, as those who, what? Will not. They're blinder than the physically blind who cannot see. That's what's going on here. There are none so blind as those who will not see. But the will not become the cannot. That's what's scary. That's what we're going to look at. 
God gives people ample time to acknowledge their sin and seek forgiveness and refuge in Jesus Christ. They have the ability to do that. His people had plenty of time to acknowledge who he was, to seek him, to go to him, to pray. Lord, reveal to us. So here's the Isaiah 6. This is the passage, 8 to 10. You remember, first of all, let me set this up. So you remember the king, the year King Uzziah died, right? What, what, did, what did Isaiah experience in Isaiah 6? That's right. He saw the Lord, the train of his temple, right? Yeah. It was quite an amazing vision. So that's, that's what we have going in. But let's pick it up at verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then he said, and we love to fancy ourselves saying this, don't we, until we get scared. Here I am, send me. And then he starts portioning out that which he's appointed. And you're like, you, you got anything else? Some other? Is that? Okay. And he said, go and say to this people, here it is, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. What's he saying here? Keep hearing. Go to the people and tell them this. Keep hearing. Keep hearing. Do not understand. Obviously, it implies there must be a way they could have what are we getting to? There begins with a W. Their will. And you can hear just the, this grievous frustration of God with this. And so it almost sounds like we would call snarky. Go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand. You will indeed see and never perceive. For this people's what? This is the crux of the matter. This is what I've wanted. I've told them from the Pentateuch. I've told them from the beginning of the scriptures what I wanted from them. What is it? Their heart. Their heart. He doesn't want our sacrifices if our heart isn't involved, yeah? He doesn't. Don't bring me any more of your sacrifices. Stop doing it. Stay home, watch TV. I don't want it because I don't have your heart. So keep preaching, preacher. Keep preaching. So that hearing, they will not hear. They will not understand. They're never going to understand. Why? Because their heart is not after me. Their heart isn't even seeking me. They're not looking for me. This is... Their heart has grown dull. Their ears are heavy. Blind their eyes. Blind them. This is a torturously sad moment. Lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears 
and understand with their hearts. Because if they did, and turn, and be healed, because that is the understanding I would bring to them, would they seek me? Would they love me enough or respect me enough, have enough reverential fear to understand that I'm God and they must answer to me and they know there's a problem with their lives, but they won't. They won't. Not they can't. But soon, they can't. That's the principle. Ezekiel 12.2, and I want to show you some more verses. Ezekiel 12.2 says, Son of man, you dwell in the midst of a rebellious house. Who have eyes to see, but do not see. Who have ears to hear, but hear not, for they are a rebellious house. So here's the principle. The longer a person refuses God, refuses to hear from God, refuses to seek God, the greater the risk of being hardened against Him. That's why we grow in our passion. Because people are settling in to a malaise. They grew up hearing these things. They've heard them perhaps from you. And the more they reject them, the harder their heart is becoming. You've heard that phrase. It's the same sun that softens as hardens the clay. Yeah? To those who are seeking Him who truly have a heart that wants to know Him. How about Zechariah? This is chapter 7, verse 8, and then we'll look at verse 10 to 14. Zechariah 7, 8 and 10 to 14. And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, verse 10, Let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. But they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they might not hear. They don't want to hear. This is why I've marshaled together these particular passages because they help me make the, understand what has been a very, very mysterious concept. But watch. Verse 11. But they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they might hear. They made their hearts, they made their hearts, key point, diamond hard. They used diamond-tipped drill bits to drill through solid granite. Harder than that. Lest they should hear the law and the words of the Lord. What was the law sent for? You need to, do you need to hear it or not hear it? Yes, you need to hear it. Why? It shows you're in need. That's how it's supposed to work. Because I acknowledge I'm not an idiot, that there's a God. And that we belong, this is all His, and we'll have to answer to Him. You didn't want to hear the law, lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of, the Ho, Lord of hosts had sent by His Spirit through the former prophets. Now listen carefully. Therefore, great anger came from the Lord of hosts. Verse 13, As I called, they would not hear. What does that suggest? Willful. They would not hear me. Not cannot. They wouldn't. It's willful. 
So they call, so they called, and I would not hear. Says the Lord of hosts. They typically call. Well, we understand from James, right? You, 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 you don't receive because you do not ask. You ask because you ask and do not receive. Why? You ask amiss. So when they call out to him for the things that their lust, their flesh desires, the way they want life to play out, he's saying, I don't hear you. All I ever wanted was your heart. And you would not. And I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations. This is Diaspora. He let every conquering people come in. The Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians come in and just conquer them and spread them around the world. That's why there's enclaves of Jewish people all around the world. How did they get there? This is how. God dispersed. He scattered his people. What did Christ come to do? Unify. That's why unity among the brethren is such a high premium. Yeah? Would that we would treat that that way. We need help. Oh, now watch this. So verse 13 of Zechariah 7 says, they would not hear. Now listen to John. Let's go into the New Testament. This is John 12, verse 35 to 41. Or actually 37, I'm sorry, 37 to 41. Though Jesus had done so many signs before them, seeing they do not what? Huh. Though Jesus had done so many signs right before their eyes, their physical eyes, they still did not believe him. Where did that come from? Not enough information. Is that what's happening with you, with your evangel? Is it that you don't have enough evidence? Don't believe that for a minute. It's not true. They still did not believe him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Listen carefully. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? These things have been revealed to everyone. Only the fool says in his heart there is what? No God. Only a fool would say that. He has made it abundantly obvious. Why? Because he loves people that much. And to vindicate himself. You will say to me, who will, shall we find fault with God? May it never be. You've got far more. And we're to not only observe what God has done in our lives, we're to remember, we're to acknowledge it. Therefore, those who have been made righteous in Christ will be remembered forever. Right? Psalm 112, verse 6. They will be remembered. I will remember them. Why? Because you're remembering me. You're remembering the works that I had done. You're remembering the creation and how you marveled over all of the great things I've done. So he says, 
Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? They're going to have to shut off the ears not to. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So he's citing Isaiah 6, verse 39, he says this, Therefore they, what? Could not believe. Because we're in the New Testament now. Paul's going to finish this chapter out by saying, we're turning to the Gentiles. Three words. They will listen. And that's it. No more to the Jew first. They will listen. Jesus making it clear. They can't. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not kill? We're talking generations of rejection in brutal forms. We're done. Therefore they could not believe. For again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart. Ah, now we know where that came from. Because they will not, now they cannot. He blinded their eyes, hardened their heart. He let, it, he let their heart get calcified by virtue of their own choice. Their own willfulness to reject the message. Lest... They see with their eyes, understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Still, the truth, the availability is there. Matthew 13, 13 to 15. This is why I speak to them in parables. Here's why. Because seeing they do not see, hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Now we know why. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of, of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but not, never understand. Never. Never. You're going to hear it over and over again. You'll never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed. Who has closed them? They have closed them. They're done. They're not even looking for God anymore. They're just going about in their mindless, shapeless, dead and blind, perfunctory performances of a self-imposed religion. Oh, what we make of it. May it never be. Lord, keep my heart soft, always seeking. Always seeking. This is scares me. And so, Paul says in Romans eleven seven to eight, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it. Praise God, there is an elect. But the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. All the way back to Pharaoh, right? Over and over he had opportunity. First is Pharaoh hardening his own heart, then God's hardening his heart through all ten of the plagues that he sent. Finally just gives him over to his hardness, the hardness of his heart. Verse 
28. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. I'm just going to tell you straight out. Remember his audience. These are the Jewish leaders of Rome. They will listen. So as I said, it used to be to the Jew first and also to the Greek, as he said in Romans chapter 1 and Romans chapter 2. Matthew 10, 5 to 7, these 12 Jesus sent out instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles, enter no town of the Samaritans, but go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The reason he's doing that is because he's going to prove a point he already knows exists. But he's going to make it clearer. And proclaim as you go, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Or Luke twenty four forty seven, Repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning with Jerusalem. And then we go into Acts. And now we finish Acts. We're done here. I'm going to the Gentiles because they will listen. How sad. How sad this had to be for Paul. Acts 13. Paul said something similar. The Jews have now closed themselves off to the gospel here. As we're closing out, Acts verse 30. He lived there in those rented quarters two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness, without hindrance. Proclaiming the kingdom of God. This is the sphere of God that reigns in the hearts of those who are elect, those who are believers, those who did seek God, those who have received Christ. Teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ without hindrance. And it looks like some are responding here. Free to speak at will. This without hindrance. He can say whatever he wants. The Romans don't know what he's talking about anyway. Openly communicating the truth of God's word will always be met with opposition in this world. You, you should, it should get your attention if it doesn't. It, it gets mine. I wonder what part of the gospel I might have left out probably has something to do with their sin and being overcome with people-pleasing, my desire for approbation or the approval of man instead of my God. Our sins have inflicted a great wound on our souls as fallen people, wounds that we can't heal ourselves. As a result, we're born spiritually dead and blind with no spiritual heartbeat. Deuteronomy 29, 1-4. I mean, you'll see this principle all throughout Scriptures. These are the words of the covenant that the Lord commanded Moses to make with the people of Israel in the land of Moab besides the covenant that he made with them at Horeb. Verse 2, And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, You have seen, underline that word, 
all that the Lord did before your eyes. You see, there it is again in the land of Egypt. You saw what he did to deliver you. To Pharaoh and to his servants and to all his land, the great trials that your eyes saw. Why would he say that? Well, we understand why now. Because we've sought the text and allow Scripture to answer Scripture to give us help in understanding why is he using this language. Now we know. The great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and those great wonders, but to this day the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. I ask you this question, why not? What's that? Yes. Disbelief. Finding God untrustworthy. However you want to put that. He doesn't have their heart. He doesn't have their allegiance. He doesn't have their faith. And you saw all of these things. I mean, can you imagine seeing the things that God did to deliver His people from Egypt? You've read through that. It's remarkable. And yet their hearts are still dull. I mean, this principle is pervasive and it's powerful. So as we finish up, here's how to receive the spiritual healing he's been talking about. I want to draw your attention to Hebrews chapter 3 with some selected verses there as we're winding it down. How can we receive that healing that he offers? Now we understand why he's citing the Old Testament here and the hardening of Israel's heart. And they couldn't enter into the rest, remember? Chapter 3, 7 and 8. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today. And so, by the way, the Greek verb, that still applies to what? Today. Yeah. Today. Today, this message is for me. Today, this message is for you. Today, if you hear his voice, how do we know how to hear it? We know how now. How is it? Give him your heart. Desire to know him desire to see him, recognize your profound sinfulness and your need for a sacrifice. Believe what he said when he said he sent his son to die for those sins. Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. There's that word again, all through scripture. We have limited time. I could show you even more. You'll find it on your own. This rebellion, refusing to hear. Verse 12 of Hebrews 3, take care, brothers. This is a warning for us. This is New Testament. Lest there be in any of you an unevil, unbelieving heart. See, doubt, right? Don't, don't doubt. I have someone very close that I love who has known the Lord decades, all the way back to the 70s, who has vehemently apostatized the faith. And you look at this. 
Be careful. Lest there be any evil or an unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Verse 16. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not those who left Egypt led by Moses? You see? Scripture, the Analogia Scriptura as they refer to it. Scripture, revealing Scripture. Scripture interconnecting with the whole. That continuity, that inextricable continuity of Scripture. We understand this a bit better now, today, having reviewed these passages on this topic. Verse 18 and 19, And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of, here it is, unbelief. Friends, unbelief is not you didn't come up with quite enough clever things to say or it's, you know, Satan would love to accuse you that way. I didn't do enough. I wasn't there enough. I didn't talk to them enough. I shrunk back a little bit here, a little bit there. Unbelief, write this down, is willful. It doesn't matter how much opportunity you have. It's willful. Listen. One more familiar verse tucked in a passage so we get its context and I can get you out of the uh, time-honored glaze that has formed over this verse. We're going to put it back in its context. And on this point, we want the healing, right? Second Chronicles 7, 13 to 16. Listen. When I shut up the heavens, he talked for a few verses about when I do all of these things that are consequences of your sin. So we're just going to pick it up at 13 and bring this in for closing. When I shut up the heavens, what's that called? Uh, It's called a drought. Shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among the people. Why, by the way, why would he do that? Why would he do that? To get their attention. Maybe they'll cry out to the one who controls the weather, the one who sends the stripping and and, and devouring locusts. If my people, here's what we do. Here's how we get healed, folks. If my people who are called by my name, that's the elect, humble themselves and pray, this is a list, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. See that word turn again? It's always a necessary component to seeking God. You must turn from who you were, what you, how you used to talk, what you used to do, and turn toward God and His ways. That's where the obedience always comes in with this conversation too. It's they're, an un, they're disobedient people because they're rebellious. They haven't turned from their ways. They have no desire to. They keep rejecting me. Turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear. Remember when he said, I'm not going to hear from you because you didn't, you didn't listen to me. So I'm not hearing from you. But then, if you seek his face and turn from your wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive. 
only now to the prayer that is made in this place. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. I want to leave you with something that Clarence said that I thought it was only proper to finish with a good Scottish theologian. Let us have confidence in the greatness of the word. Though the world may be deaf to its music and blind to its power. And let us never fear to ally ourselves with a cause which we know to be God's. However, it may be unpopular. And made light of by the quote-unquote leaders of opinion, unquote, end quote. Here's Paul's doxology to the Roman church. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much. Lord, we, you've, You've given us plenty of warnings. We thank you again for your patience with us. Lord, we want to seek you. That takes the humility. We want to humble ourselves and seek your face. We want to fall down before you. We want to pray. Oh God, forgive us. Oh God, bless us. Oh God, thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ the only hope of salvation, the only hope of our healing. Keep our hearts soft. Keep us searching to find you. Your word says, you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all of your heart. May that be us. To this we hope to commit. In Christ's name and for his glory. Amen.